Well, you're particularly uh, good-looking today, I must say, particularly good-looking. Some of you are wearing the colors, and uh, if you're not, uh, Brad made sure that uh, the right colors were represented. You notice the, the, scheme is, the color scheme is supposed to bring people into this awesome presence and awareness of Jesus, and it's supposed to not alienate you if you happen to be a Hawks fan or a Broncos fan. Your colors are here, so to give it up for Brad, yes. <laughs> Hands already checked to see how many Hawks fans and Bronco fans there are. And a few of you are in the third category. Couldn't care less, right? <laughs> Some of you think the Super Bowl is a toilet that self-cleans. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I hope that for you too. We'll just include everybody here. Awesome, Yeah. Well, there's a guy named Russell uh, Oking, and by the way, Ann and I are divided uh, family, pray for us. We actually have to watch the first half together and then come back here and act like we love each other and God to do the six o'clock service. That's right. Ann's going with the, uh, with the old guy, you know, for Denver, and, uh, and I've got to go with Max Unger under center, I mean center, my, my Oregon Duck guy uh, in Seattle, so mixed family here today. There is a bug right here that's distracting me. Right there. Well, do something with it, Russell. <laughs> Russell's, Russell is the elder in this church. And now you know what they do. That's right. <laughs> Oh, you are, you're so, oh, I'm going to need a lot of help, but right now you can go ahead and be seated. Oh, man. So, a guy named uh, Russell Okung, he's uh, from Nigeria originally. Uh, he's starting for Seattle as a defensive uh, uh, tackle. He is 6'5", 310 pounds of solid muscle and bone, and he loves Jesus with all of his heart. He's very public about his faith. That's cool, isn't it? Pretty cool, yeah. Go Russell, yeah. But I got to tell you, Peyton Manning couldn't care less today that Russell Okung loves Jesus with all of his heart because he's going to be lined up like a hundred times, five feet away from that person, and that person loves Jesus with all of his heart and is planning on sacking him as many times as he can. I don't know what causes fear for you today, but that would be fearful for me, being tackled by Russell Okung. Yeah. What makes your stomach queasy? For me, I'll be honest with you, I don't like scary rides, but I do ride a motorcycle, and, and, yeah, here we go. When I grew up, I want to be like Russell, the bug picker. I went motorcycle shopping, and he let me borrow his, which looked just like those, just like this same kind. And I ended up, Russ, I want to be like you when I grow up. Here is the ride. This is the ride. Mm-hmm. I love you, but I don't trust you. I did not even bring the keys on campus today. They are not. They are not here. Now I'll do stuff that's legitimately uh, dangerous, like pilot a plane and go rock climbing, and ride a motorcycle. But there's stuff that's much statistically safer to do that you're never going to find me doing. I am not going to dance in front of you, for example. That is just not going to happen. 
But some of you might, uh, you might really appreciate the guy that I bought this from. You know, this is a used bike. He had it for two years, and it had, uh, he put 148 miles on it. Yeah. That's less than a quarter of a mile a day. So I'm interviewing about the motorcycle. Oh, it runs great. It's powerful. It's fast. It's awesome. You can't believe how fast it gets up to 60. He's telling me all of this in a less polite setting. I would call it crap, but you're here today and I won't do that here. 148 miles and he's telling me about this wonderful machine, right? So I talked to him about how he used it. He never left the neighborhood. (laughs) Bought it, had it delivered home, and he has a four-block neighborhood that he went around. Frequently, he assured me. He and his wife had awesome helmets. They had gear, jackets. They threw it all in with the bike. They were safe and protected people. What actually happened? He got scared, right? Somewhere along the power and the speed and his control, he just didn't get comfortable, and so he didn't ride it. And some of you are saying, he's a lot smarter than you are, right? I understand. Each of us has a fear profile. It's as unique as a thumbprint. What's your fear profile? I've spoken to crowds of over 5,000 people, and I haven't broken into a sweat, but I would be scared spitless to dance in front of five people. That's a part of my profile, All of us have fears. Maybe you'll find yourself in these top seven. Uh, Number one fear uh, in seventh place that we're told about is that people don't like going to the dentist. Maybe you're one of those folks. In fact, they didn't even show up today. They're just absolutely (laughs) not there. You see yourself in that picture. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Hey, for any of you that are in dental care, I apologize, but up to 20% of us American adults will avoid going to a dentist because of anxiety or fear. Number six fear is the fear of dogs. Whether it's a puppy-sized dog that fits in your purse or a buff German shepherd, those of us that have this anxiety about dog that's called cynophobia, we don't like dogs, especially that one, by the way, that needs to have some dental work done, I've, I've noticed. How about scary places? About 2 million Americans suffer from agoraphobia and claustrophobia, which involves the intense fear anxiety of any small or large social space that you might not be able to get out of you. Some of us are scared of snakes, considered one of the most common phobias. There you go. Yeah, it's got the venom already for you, baby. How about number three, fear number three, the fear of heights. If you're queasy when you're standing on the edge of a rooftop, you are in good and ample company, I will tell you. How about number two fear? The fear of speaking in front of an audience. Yeah, just the idea causes sweat to pour from your pores and a sick feeling. And I'd tell you that that was me when I was younger, but I was never that small in my entire life. But that's how I feel every time I talk to you. And if I look any different, it's a wonderful act that I put on. How about the number one fear? Here it is. Are you ready? It's loss of control. Yeah, the greatest fear of all. So being honest in front of God and everybody right here today, that's my greatest fear, loss of control. I'll do dangerous stuff, and there's other stuff that I won't do that's statistically safe. It's all around loss of control. I will never go on the Matterhorn at Disneyland. You know why? Because I'm not going to entrust my life to some 
kid that's operating a control booth in a dark basement in some room underneath Sleeping Beauty's castle. It is not going to happen. I will jeopardize my life on this, Russell, but I will not lose control to a kid operating the Matterhorn. Are we clear on that? Yeah. <laughs> loss, loss of control. I am afraid of giving up control. Hmm. We're going to hear today, in a moment, as Isaac reads two stories, as we re-enter our study in the book of Luke for the next several weeks. Luke chapter 8, he's going to start reading from verse 22, two stories about two very different kinds of people. Both groups of people become extremely frightened with Jesus. The first group responding, he's got too much power and he scares me. And the second group saying, I prefer my own problems to his unknown solutions. Loss of control. Let's listen as Isaac reads Luke 8 from 22. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary spaces. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they had begged Jesus repeatedly, not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and the demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down to the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Now when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, and then all of the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. 
Maybe you've had your own experience of being uh, in a boat, either in a lake or a river or out in the ocean and having kind of a close call and a scare that can come from that. Imagine that you're on the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a large lake. You're there as a professional. The little towns around the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel were primarily small villages of a 50 to 100 people. And most of the people who lived there were either farmers or fishermen or, or worked for the IRS, collecting for the Roman government. Uh, Jesus had drawn from all of those communities, and he was a carpenter in the middle of that mix. The Sea of Galilee is about 12 miles in one direction and six miles in the other, about 200 feet deep, and is generally rather calm. But the fishermen who lived their life as professionals on the lake primarily fishing at night, knew that there were times in the day and evening that could be perilous. Generally, the wind would come up between three and four in the afternoon, sometimes a squall, and sometimes also in the evening, again, about seven or eight. And if one of those squalls turned into a storm and you were there, it could be deadly. In fact, several boats from the era of Jesus have been brought up that were sunk in the Sea of Galilee, letting us know not only how perilous it was, but also what those boats looked like. Jesus finishes an exhausting day of service and ministry. He's been teaching and healing and feeding people and caring for them, and they've been pressing against him. The 12 of his followers, soon to be called apostles, were also likely exhausted from all of the pressure. And Jesus turns to them, and he says to one of them, a fisherman, why don't we get into one of these boats and go to the other side? And possibly, they're all going to have a day off. You can imagine how excited they would be about that. But as they get into the storm, and Jesus is exhausted, so he lays down, and there are probably two teams of six that were rowing the boat. It's how they were made. For first six rowing first, and then they would be relieved by the second team of six. Jesus goes to the bottom of the boat, and he begins to sleep. And you know the story. Isaac read it well. The storm comes, and it is so perilous that they are absolutely in fear of their lives. It has now become nighttime. Their boat has spun around so many times. They are disoriented. They cannot see even the light of a campfire from shore if they were there. They are absolutely in fear of peril of their life. They are weary. They are exhausted. They're making no progress. And what I've just described about their storm is exactly what some of you feel like this morning about your life. You've been at brought into this thing. You don't know why you're there. You're confused about it. You're bewildered. You've tried your best. You think that Jesus is in the boat with you. You have prayed. It doesn't seem that he's responding. And you're wondering if this time you're actually going to go down for the count. So we read that they wake Jesus and they say, Master, we're really sorry to wake you from your nap. We know how important sleep is for you, but we got to tell you, we're the professionals here. We've made our living dealing with this kind of peril on the sea. And we're at the end of our rope. We, we, we are going to go down. I don't know if it was as much as a prayer of help us or if it was a warning, be awake when you die with us. I really don't know which it was. But they were at the end of their rope. And you know what happens in the storm. It's phenomenal. These men who knew Jesus well came to him just as you do in your storms. They came and sought his help. We come to Jesus for help. In scripture, we come in song, we come in prayer, we request his help, and he has awakened in our situation as we've invited him in. And he stands up and he looks at the wind and the rain and the waves and he says, stop it. And I think he lays down and goes back to sleep. And the disciples are stunned. The words are amazed, in awe. 
and afraid. I say, why are these guys scared? Wouldn't you feel a little relieved? They are afraid because they have just had an amazing encounter with this Jesus that they knew was special. In fact, as I describe him, some of you will say, that's what I think about Jesus. They knew he was special. They knew him as a rabbi. They knew him as a compelling teacher. They knew him as maybe even a prophet and maybe even having some supernatural abilities. But they were not prepared for what they got when he stood up and said, stop it. You see, the kind of Jesus that they were comfortable with was the kind of Jesus that, can you even see this? It's kind of like a flicker. I mean, if you have your keys and it's dark at night and you want some help to find the keyhole to get into your house, all you want's a flicker. You want help, but not much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or maybe, maybe you're in a serious situation. I mean, there's bumps in the night and you've just read your kids or grandkids a scary story and you know that you're the person, the adult that has to take care of it. What you really want is a flashlight, right? And we want to go see what those bumps in the house are making. I want help, but not that much. More than a flicker, but just a flashlight. I want help, but not that much help. When these guys woke the master, they got help, baby. They got, this wasn't a flicker. This wasn't a flashlight. This was a spotlight, and I just about nailed you with it. And you may be blind. We may be testing Jesus that causes the blind to see. I don't know. When he comes as a spotlight, you may get a lot more than you wanted or thought you needed. And that's why they are scared spitless. You see, on that day, they were introduced to someone more than a prophet, more than a great teacher, more than someone who had a few supernatural tricks up his sleeve. They discovered that he was the God-man, the marriage of humanity, This man who walked and ate and talked and laughed as they did and was utterly exhausted and God divine who came as the second member of the Trinity, God's son himself coming to earth to join with humanity, the God man. And for the first time in their experience, they had a revelation of who was in their boat and they were scared spitless of God man in their boat. Wow. Amazing. Because when he stood and said, stop it, and that's what a rebuke is. We use the Bible word rebuke, and it's so uh, unfamiliar in our common vocabulary that it kind of sounds religious, biblical, and old, doesn't it? Something reserved for demons and stuff. But as Ann mentioned, we got to be with our extended families. We were with our kids and their kids. And and I noticed that parents have the ability to rebuke their children, the toddlers. You know what I mean? He or she says, stop it. And these tall people actually think they have the authority to control the behavior of this short person. Now, what short people know around the world is that they perfectly have the power to make the decision on whether or not to obey. But here's the dynamic. If someone has the authority to say, stop it, And whatever they have authority over stops it. You have just discovered the real authority. And when Jesus stood in a boat and said to nature, stop it. And the wind stopped and the waves ceased. The disciples were frightened because they said, only creator God 
could be in this boat, taking authority over his creation. Now, that's what's obvious to us, but what's less obvious is the cultural context for these 12 Christ followers who were good Jewish boys. Jewish superstition at the time suggested that seas, bodies of water, actually were filled with spiritual chaos and unclean spiritual forces. In fact, that's referred to later in the Bible, the last book, the Revelation, where it talks about a future state of peace, and it says, there will, quote, there will be no more sea, end quote. No more chaos. No more concentration of spiritual evil forces that can harm us. So when Jesus stood up from his nap and said, stop it, the disciples went, whoa. God is here. We didn't need that much power. We, we just wanted this other guy to help us out, but this is God creator that takes authority over creation. This is God's spiritual master that takes authority over dark spiritual forces. And they were afraid. And their question to each other in that boat was, who is this? And that's the question that all of us ask every time we have a new encounter with God where we're stretched in our understanding and revelation and awareness of who he is. Who is this? They were afraid. We knew he was a holy man and a rabbi and a prophet. And like many of us today, we know he's a good man and a moral teacher and he's a wonderful example and maybe even some supernatural capacity, but This far exceeds anything that we've known. They said, who is this? Jesus who conquered not only nature, but conquered Israel, arch enemy, evil himself with a mere word, stop. And it produced awe and wonder and fear. Who is this? And that's a great question. This divine one that comes in human form and blends like a chameleon into a human body and then exposes himself to us with revelation. On one hand, he's utterly exhausted and needing a nap and a day off. And on the other hand, he stands and takes authority over all of created universe. Who is he? And so we live our lives, exhausted, weary, worn, disappointed, wondering, questioning. We come to the master. We request his help And we discover when he helps that we're just beginning to get to know him. And every time we're stretched to the same question, who is this? Storm is over. First story's done. First lesson learned, it's this. Jesus is more powerful than you know and probably more powerful than you're comfortable with. (laughs) He will evoke fear and awe. He's not just the toddler's helper to kiss the boo-boo and make the owie go away, but he'll start with you there. We all do, 
We don't even know enough to ask the right questions or to give him the right answer to his question, what do you want me to do for you? But he starts with us there. But when he starts there, he makes sure that he lets us know that that's not all who he is. Next time you will get the flashlight, Jesus, and you'll say, whoa, who is this? And it won't be long before he shows up as the spotlight and you too are going to say, I don't know who this is in my life. I'm not sure I want this in my It's all about losing control. And when he brings the strength of his power, you know that to take the next step means that you are not going to keep control. First story. The second story is what happens when the seas calm and Whoever are the six left on duty or the six that are left not too exhausted to row finally bring the boat into shore 12 miles away from they started, but a world of way with a very different kind of people, culturally, religiously, and spiritually. These were people who were far from the God of Israel, far from the God of the Old Testament, had not grown up in Sabbath school, memorizing portions of the Old Testament. They were far from God. They were considered by the Jews pagan people. They had their own religious system and beliefs. They had their own dietary restrictions. They had pigs, and the Jews on the other side of the lake would not, for example, we find from the story. We're hoping that these guys row Jesus into a wonderful dock, jumps off, Ah, is met by somebody coming out from the spa with a nice refreshing drink with a little pink umbrella in it. And they're all escorted in and they sit in the hot tub and there's going to be a wonder bed. Jesus is finally going to get a day off. That's what you're hoping for, isn't it? But Isaac, you ruined it, buddy. You read the end of the story. Jesus is treated by the craziest guy in the whole region, a demon-possessed guy, and he's naked, and he's bruised and bleeding and scarred and screaming and has Duck Dynasty beard. He just looks like a... No disrespect intended. I've actually married into a family that's related to him. Actually, our daughter did, so I'm, I'm with you. He was a mess. And Jesus, all of a sudden jumps into action. Here's the deal. God has made us with minds. And so we have minds, we have thoughts. Sometimes our thoughts get screwed up and we need help thinking differently. And so people teach us and they train us and they give us principles and they encourage us to practice. And some people counsel us to help us think differently. I refer many people to professional counseling. I go to a professional counselor myself from time to time. Aren't you happy about that? That gives you some hope. Jesus and counseling might get him fixed after time. Yeah. God has made us with physical bodies, and so we're a physical being. I make lots of referrals to medical professionals because sometimes what we need is we need a diagnosis and we need medication or we can be helped by other kinds of therapy. God made us with minds and he made us with bodies. But God also made us with spirits. And we encounter that day on the Sea of Galilee is a man, regardless of what his mental conditions might have been, whatever his friends and neighbors and others had helped him with to think right, it did not solve his problem. And whatever physical restraints or 
uh, treatments they might have given. He was even able to break the shackles with which he was changed. And finally, they decided that they couldn't help him mentally and they couldn't help him physically. And so they were going to manage his spiritual condition, which, by the way, is what many of us hope we can do with our sin as well. We're just going to manage it. The guy's crazy. We're going to put guards around the cemetery, and we're going to make him live in the cemetery, and he's going to be naked, and he's going to make a lot of funny noises over there, and we're going to train our children, stay away from the cemetery, because there's a dangerous guy, and he's naked, and he's dirty, and he's loud, and stay away from the cemetery. And they had gotten comfortable with how they had chosen to manage their spiritual condition, just as we have in 2014 in North America. And so we find these conditions that don't seem to have a solution. Now, in our day, a person exhibiting these kinds of symptoms might well be diagnosed with multiple personality syndrome or, or uh, dis, uh, dissociative behavior. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that most people today that have those diagnoses are demonized. That's not the point at all. The point is this man was demonized. And in this world that God made, we as Christians believe that there is a real Satan, that there are real unclean forces called demons who follow and worship him. And we believe that because we believe the Bible. And here is a creative story. God created everyone and God created everything. And in that creation, created spiritual beings, including a hierarchy of angels. And one of those leaders named now Satan chose to rebel against God and took others, angels with him, now fallen angels, now called demons, and they retain certain powers that they had before. They know that they are doomed. And it is why when they spoke to Jesus, they pleaded with him, do not send us into the abyss. They know that ultimately hell was prepared for them. They know that that's their destiny, that they know that there's no redemption for them, and they pleaded with Jesus. But as they fell from heaven and set up shop on planet earth, they have made it their mission, as Jesus said of Satan, to kill, steal, and destroy from every human being in their rebellion against God. And so it is possible for people to be subject to those influences. Bible says that God is the creator of all, but we understand that a very real war is going on. And this man is legendary within his community. And they don't know and understand all of his problems, but they know that they can't help him with them. There is a war out there. We we don't talk too much about this stuff at Evergreen for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them happens to be because it just freaks a bunch of you out, and we'd rather not have you freaked out. I mean, seriously. Uh, probably a more substantial reason is we don't want to give the devil any more credit than he deserves, and we just don't like to give him much publicity and airtime. I'd far rather talk about Jesus than the devil. Doesn't that make sense? And the role model for that is Paul's writing to the church at Rome where he writes 16 chapters and mentions Satan one time. And this is the verse. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's the verse. That's how much airtime he got. I kind of like the percentage of airtime. But notice that he did mention him, the reality of that. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it, but all of you, whether you've been involved in vocational ministry or you're involved in ministry in the workplace, you have encountered unclean spiritual forces. I have been screamed at, shrieked at, grunted at, spit on, puked on, physically assaulted. I have physically restrained people struggling their way toward freedom. 
My first encounter that I was aware of with uh, demonic physical forces was uh, a freshman uh, in the dorms at the U of O. And those of you that are Beaver fans would say, serves you right for going to Eugene. I understand. I, <laughs> I can take it. I can take it. Yep. Physically watched a dorm room being trashed by an unseen, spiritual, and powerful force. I go, wow. Yeah. Not long after that was working with others as we were uh, serving and ministering and praying for uh, a young woman, seven, uh, 17 years old. And in that process, she exhibited a variety of behaviors, including going in this posture directly through a glass, sliding glass door. Yeah. Now, this war is real. Now, for those of you that are followers in Christ, you cannot be possessed by an evil spirit. You can be influenced externally by one. Peter was, you remember the story? He goes from boom to boom right here. He just gets revelation from God and says, you're the Christ, son of the living God. Wow. And Jesus goes, man, Peter, you actually got a revelation from the Holy Spirit, right? And the next thing that comes out of Peter's mouth is stupid, right? And Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan. Now, was Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and then filled with the devil? No. Outside influence. But he just unwisely allowed himself to be influenced with that particular thought and expression. Now, for people that are not filled with the Holy Spirit could actually find themselves through repeated decisions to be engaged in unholy kinds of experience and behavior to actually be subject to this kind of experience. Many of you have seen it. I've experienced that. There's a real war out there. Jesus, far from a day off, steps off the lake, in fact, confronted by this demonized guy who had gone to counseling, but that didn't help enough. And physically, what they were able to do for him wouldn't even restrain him. He needed a spiritual healer. He needed repentance. He needed forgiveness. He needed spiritual wholeness. He needed to be filled with God's Holy Spirit to be controlled by and demonstrate the power of God through his life. And that's what Jesus does. Now, the story about the pigs, I think, is just a kick. I'm going to keep it brief, but it's just such a kick. Now, there's these, these Jewish guys over here, the 12 boat rowers, and they're, of course, appalled about all these pigs because we'd never have pigs, right? They're unclean pigs. So these are unclean people, and there's unclean pigs. And Mark tells us that there's 2,000 of them. Now, I grew up on a farm. We had pigs. I don't particularly like pigs, but we didn't have 2,000 pigs. 2,000 pigs, you know what they would do? Yeah, they would stink really, really bad. So the story is kind of a kick for these Jewish boys because they don't think they should have pigs anyway. It's a good deal. Demons hopping the pigs, cause the pigs to go down the cliff and go off into the sea. They drowned. I mean, I think there were people laughing. The 12 guys, but not the people that owned the pigs. And this is where the story takes an interesting twist because the fact that this guy gets delivered and takes a bath and trims his beard, and puts on some clothes, and sits down with his tablet, and start taking notes along with the 12 apostles when Jesus is talking, and is saying in his right mind, that didn't make the news. But when the pigs died, the herdsmen ran back to town, told everybody in the whole region, the school shut down, the businesses stopped, it made the evening news, it was on all of the news blogs, and everybody rushes out, what happened to our pigs? They loved their pigs more than they loved the man. Hmm. They were perfectly comfortable managing our problem with our solution 
The man is a problem, but we'll keep our kids away from him. We'll keep him in the cemetery. We'll keep guards around him. We know how to manage our sin. We don't need any help with that, thank you. And when Jesus came in and put the spotlight on that town, they said, what happened to our pigs? Yeah. Well, finally, someone's attention gets back on the man. This is the demonized man. Where, 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 where? That guy, that guy right there, he was the demonized man. No, that's not him. We, last time I saw him, he was naked. It was not pretty. I mean, it was not. He was running. He was, this guy's clean. He's clothed. He's sane. And when they saw that the pigs were dead and that the man was alive, they said to Jesus, we are afraid of you. Would you please leave our town? And the last words Isaac read were, and so he, say it with me, left. The perfect gentleman, God-man. His favorite question is, what do you want me to do for you? And in the Bible, he generally gave people what they asked for. He didn't even get this question out for these people. They answered it before he asked it. And they said, sir, what you can do for us is to leave. You can go home. Hop in your little boat and row back. We do not want you here. We would rather keep our known problems than give over control to your unknown solutions. That's the great lesson from the second story. So let's pull it all together and kind of wrap things up. I'm going to ask two questions. The first is this. So who are the two groups of people in these two stories? The first one over here are the 12 apostles. They, by definition, are the people who of every human being on earth at the time know Jesus the very best. They are professionals at knowing Jesus. And their experience, when they had a further revelation of him, was, we are scared of you. You really are God. We liked you before. We're not sure we want to give over control to you now. Hmm. On the other end of the spectrum are people who were only 12 miles away, but couldn't have been further spiritually and religiously. They had absolutely no context to know about Jesus or Messiah who was going to come or temple or synagogue worship. As close to Jesus as they could be, as far from Jesus as they could be as human beings, and they had exactly the same response. We are scared of you. We don't mind having a a little flicker to fix our owie and to help us get our keys in the front door, to help us find a parking place. I'm comfortable with a friendly God, kind of a magic fairy God, kind of a helper God, or even a celestial Santa Claus favors me with good things. But this God that uh, drags me into the boat at the wrong time of the day, takes me through a storm, leaves me on my own, I have to wake him up, and then when he is awakened in answer to my prayer. He not only fixes what I ask for, but he goes so far beyond it, it's frightening to me. I didn't ask him to take me beyond my comfort zone and self-control. Or how about when he makes such a change in the life of someone around me and intervenes in the entire culture within our community 
in such a way that we say, we don't know who you are, but we know this. We would rather keep our current problems than have your unknown solutions. We really don't want to give up control. Isn't that the story that we're reading about today? It's an amazing thing. Who were afraid in these stories? Those who knew Jesus the very best and those who knew Jesus the very least. Yeah. The Old Testament poets used a beautiful word for this. It's called magnify. You see, the more we learn about him, the bigger he gets to us. And so the psalmists would say, oh, magnify the Lord with me. When I sing songs that pick up those lyrics, often there's peaceful emotions evoked in me. I want you to know from the story of the guys in the boat and the guys on the other shore that when God gets magnified in your experience, peace may not be the first emotion that comes to your heart. You may be struck with awe and amazement and even fear as well. Hmm. I love what a really smart guy said a long, long time ago. In fact, this was written 400 years before Jesus came. Actually, it's another thing that was written, and it's the one that says we can easily forgive. This is what it says. We can easily forgive a child who's afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. That's what Plato said 400 years before Christ. It's one thing for a kid to be afraid of the dark, but what a tragedy for men when the light of the world comes to say, I don't know that I want a God that that's that big. Ann and I love, as many of you, C.S. Lewis writings, and probably many of you have read The Chronicles of Narnia. It's in one of the books where the children are being introduced to Aslan the lion, who is the Jesus type in the book, and they come to Mr. Beaver, and they ask, Mr. Beaver, is Aslan safe? And his response is, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. We love that. Of course he isn't safe. God being safe, the creator of the universe, the one who created heaven and earth, the one who created hell for Satan and his demons and those, of course he isn't safe. But he's good. You don't want a God that's not safe, that's so small that he's not able to blow your mind with his power and the majesty but you do want to trust a God who is good. Again, and finally, it was Old Testament poets in Psalm 62, parts of verses 11 and 12 that says this, power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. That's the God you can entrust your life to. Powerful enough to surprise you and scare you. Loving enough to never mislead you or not care for you. Power and love. So, what's your fear profile? (laughs) What's your storm? What's your bondage? We all have stuff. 
Some of us have a mean streak. Some of us are just flat out selfish. Some of us are thoughtless. Some of us are into porn. Some of us abuse alcohol or drugs. Some of us are engaged in casual sex. Some of us are liars. Some of us are messed up finances and we're not good stewards. Some of us are struggling with being single. Some of us are struggling with being married. Some of us are struggling not having kids. Some of us are struggling because we're having kids. Some of us are messed up with work or have challenges with career or job or school or retirement. All of us have storms. All of us have found our way into or out of bondage. What's your fear profile? And would you let him in today? If you don't let him in, he'll go back home. But if you do, he'll change your world. Let's pray.